You ever have one of those things where you don't really have a huge amount to talk about, but you really enjoyed the experience anyways? That's kind of how Radiant Historia feels to me. Oh, by the way, this is not me affecting a voice. This is just me still having problems with being sick. Apologies. Nothing I can do about it. Moving on. I've heard this game compared a lot to Chrono Trigger, which I find very interesting since apparently most of the actual inspiration came from your old classic choose-your-own-adventure games. And by games, I of course mean books. Anyone remember those? You know, you... Alright, go to page 13. Oh, I'm dead! Right? Like, if I make that comparison, it's probably obvious in hindsight. There's so much of this game that is, oops, that was a bad ending, or, oh, I died early, oh, well, let's just rewind back to where I had my finger, right? Because you always had your fingers at the decision points, and sometimes you'd have, like, four or five fingers in the book as you go doing more and more branching storylines. Right? It's actually funny to me how much, uh, for lack of a better term, how many negative endings, how many bad endings, I should say, there are in this game. I suppose that's where some of that whole Chrono Trigger thing comes in. But again, I feel that's more of the choose-your-own-adventure. But personally... Personally, I would say that this reminds me a little bit more of Final Fantasy XIII-2 than it does actually Chrono Trigger. Now, some people might take that as an insult, but I want to stress that I don't mean that as one at all. Uh, in fact, I actually really enjoyed thirteen two when I made a full playthrough of it, well, a partial playthrough of it, uh, recently for the low run last year. That was some fun stuff. And I liked being able to, like, chung, chung, all right, go here, chung, let's try this, chung, oh, hang on, we got a new path open, and so forth and so on. And there's the whole decision points thing, and being able to tell which side quests affect what. There's just all sorts of cool aspects of that. Oh, I should mention that I was playing the DS version of Radiant Historia, not the new one that isn't out yet, because it can't, it's just coming out too late. I couldn't delay this rumination. Like, I, Some of you may not be aware of this, but I have to do these videos very well in advance. It's the only way that any show can function. You know, I don't record these the day of or the week of You know, the actual video going live. I usually record well over a month or two in advance because I have to. It's a show, right? I mean, it's obvious, right? So I wanted to comment on that. Is everything visible here? Yep, okay. We're using a slightly new mic setup, too, which is funny because you probably can't tell because of my throat. But anyways, so I wanted to tell you that because as the time of me having gone through this entire game and then finished my research on it and then finished playing it and now sitting there recording, the new Radiant Historia uh, Perfect Chronicle, whatever the heck it's called, isn't out yet. It's a shame because I'm very curious what they're going to do with certain things, including the fact that the game isn't even really over, even if you get the golden ending. It's still leave, it's basically a there's still a problem on the horizon kind of a thing, right? I mean, there's that little hint, right, with uh, around the tree, with the scientist and his kids and and the, and the satyr, but I, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, also, it just as a quick thing, obviously, I did not do a hundred percent run of this. In fact, I didn't even have the ability to go ahead and get the golden ending myself. I decided to watch the golden ending on YouTube uh, for obvious time constraint problems. But I did run into several bad endings on accident, and it's funny how many of these are the kind of things that you wouldn't see coming. Like, some of them are obvious, you know. I don't have the invisibility spell. Oh, no, right? Or choosing to join and become uh, to, to help Fennel with his horrible thing. You know, all of that's very obvious. But there was one, and I wrote down the name. It was called Queen Ascendant. Look it up sometime. That I ran into basically completely on accident. Whoops. <clears throat> Let's talk about the combat, because I actually really enjoy the combat of this game, 
with one big exception. The it, it reminded me more of Final Fantasy X than anything else, like with a little bit of a mix of Chrono Trigger in there. Because the positioning and the pushback and the turn order... Uh, I shouldn't say the turn order, excuse me, let me rewind that. The pushback and the positioning actually matter in ways that are kind of cool, being able to stack enemies and stack up damage. That stuff was awesome. Um, and the turn order is something I actually very much enjoy. In fact, I kind of wish more video games would do this FF10 style of combat uh, in terms of turn order, because it's fully turn-based, but, you know, you go here, but you can make him go here, and you can push their turn down, and so forth and so on. It's not quite as fully fleshed out as 10, or for that matter, Tactics, because Final Fantasy Tactics actually has the same combat system in terms of its turn-based. But it was good stuff. Uh, when I very first started playing, I'm like, oh god, I'm not going to like this, because usually, in my experience, any game where you all choose your attacks, and then they all choose your attacks, isn't going to be great from a purely combat system. I love the Dragon Quest series, but that is one of the bigger flaws of its combat system. Or, uh, you know, the old Final Fantasies like FF1, 2, and 3 are good examples of this. But this one managed to make it work, and it's not like it always fails. Bravely Default comes to mind immediately, right? I digress. Um, so, I actually don't have much else to say about the combat except for one thing. So, for the most part, the UI works pretty damn well. It is a modern JRPG with most of the modern convenience features and quality of life functions, which is great. That's awesome. There's one thing that irritated the crap out of me. By the time you get towards the last act of the game, you have so many skills and abilities. And it's like, all right, I want to use this one that's like the 17th down. Click, 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 click. Okay, use that one. And then this one next, click, 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 click. That did get a little bit old. Some kind of shortcut system or maybe like a filter system might have helped to assuage that. It's a very minor complaint, but at the same time, it was a near nonstop thing. I swear to God, almost the entirety of the last battle against Apocrypha was all about... Okay, then this... Like, I spent more time clicking down through skills than actually fighting the guy. Or guys, I guess, technically. I will also say really quick, uh, I know this is kind of an aspect of story as well, but from a gameplay perspective, the way they handled the Historia itself, the way they handled going back and re, uh, redoing time, seeing the actual points you can go back to, seeing the decision points, all of that was fairly well handled, fairly intuitive, worked for me, in other words, and I liked that. So no real additional comments, just, just a general plus there. Now... This is going to sound really weird, but I don't actually have a lot to say about the story. I want to explain that a little bit before I really dig into it, because there were several aspects of the story that were competent, but otherwise unremarkable, to the point where I just don't have anything to say about it, right? For those of you who are new to my show, or at least relatively new to my show, when I sit down for these ruminations, I, this is not an in-depth analysis of every single point of a bit. This is not a review, this is me sitting down and discussing this stuff, ruminating on it, as if, for example, let's say I just played Radiant Historia, and my friend Pax over there has just played Radiant Historia. So this is the stuff that I would be talking to him about if we were to get together and talk about Radiant Historia. That's the mindset I have going into these ruminations, if that makes any sense. So... For example, the specious bias against the, the two Beastman tribes throughout the course of the game. I don't really have much to add to that. I mean, there is some fairly obvious, you know, speciesism is bad. Uh, the humans are just as horrible, but not all of them. It's mostly just the organization because that whole forcing them to be part of the war thing a few years ago thing. That was obviously a bad thing. 
I, I have to say that, oh God, I suddenly can't think of his name. I can't, I can't believe it. I can't think of his name. The Beast Guy's bad ending, where he becomes the avatar of the Beast, where he becomes the perfect Beast and loses all his humanity, and she goes to try and wreck the world. That was interesting. But again, I don't have much to say about most of that stuff. It was just there. Uh, I will say Ott, and I, by the way, I know they're having adding voice acting in the new version, but I'm going to be doing my best with these pronunciations, given that I did not have voice acting in this version. Uh, Ott was probably my favorite character from a purely gameplay perspective. But from a story-type-telling perspective, I have basically nothing to say about her other than the fact that she's there and she's powerful. Um, I do wonder about one thing about her, actually. So they talk about the possibility... This is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but in the golden ending, they talk about the possibility... Actually, in two of the endings, they talk about the possibility of fixing the desertification, right? Of actually preventing this from being a problem long-term. Okay, I'm with it. Uh, it is the kind of thing that needs to happen. Remember, this whole sacrifice thing that the whole game is about, twice, technically, was all about delaying the inevitable. It's it's a barrier you set up to prevent things from getting worse, not to make things better. So the idea of an actual solution to actually make things better sounds awesome. But one thing I found very strange is, from a thematic perspective, it felt more like it wasn't going to be the tree and the scientists and the satyrs and, and the kids that were going to actually make this true thing happen, even though, uh, oh God, the elf kids, I can't remember anyone's name right now. Honestly, I can't remember most of the characters' names. I'm just going to be honest with you. The elf kids pretty much flat out said, you know, this is going to be the actual thing that leads, you know, this is the catalyst, Mass Effect 3 reference, this is the catalyst that's going to lead towards what we're going to have happening in the future for finally fixing this problem that our dad started. <laughs> Although they never state that outright, but I, it's their freaking dad. So that's the thing that's actually going to fix it. But for me, Ott seemed like a better solution to that. First of all, obviously a massively powerful shaman. Duh, right? But she has these lines several times, and again, including in the ending, about how the dead are restless within the sands. And there's an obvious connection between the desertification and mana, right? I mean, I'll, again, all of this is duh. And that's pretty much the first thing I want to talk about. And then I'll tie this back into Ott's story, because the way mana is presented in the setting is that mana is a combination, it's basically like the glue that holds absolutely everything together, uh, both in the three dimensions and in the fourth dimension, because it is through the manipulation of mana that the tomes, the, the chronicles, I should say, are actually capable of altering history, right? So, ergo... This idea of mana being the glue for everything is kind of an omnipresent concept. I mean, even when they first invented the whole flux concept back in the old empire, it was all about manipulating mana, altering mana. And when a person's mana is ripped out of them, or the mana that sustains them is gone, they're turned into sand, just like that. And this whole desertification thing, which is actually unrelated to the sand plague, nice touch, by the way, uh, is a process by which the mana is slowly being drained out of the world by the great beast that was created by accident by the Black Chronicle back into the old empire. So, you know, that, that makes sense to me. Which brings me back to Ott and her concept about the souls, because if we are to take this in a more literal fashion, that mana is the kind of thing that sustains life and the absence of mana is literally sand which is a strange way to go, but if, if we're going to accept that premise, the idea that, that, that those deserts, 
that that desert stretch of doom is literally and i don't and not figur figuratively not metaphorically but literally the the place of the dead the land of the dead all of the trees and animals and plants and fish and frogs and everything that used to be alive there which has it has been cut off from its source of mana and the implication that Ott gives is that there's some aspect of them left there. Even with the mana, the life removed, there's still something there, whether it's their soul or it's their, you know, their katra, their chi, or whatever the heck you want to call it. There's still something there. And thus, the impression I was always given, finally tying my point back in, is that Ott and her ability to reach out to these souls and try to, to give them some semblance of either peace or caretaking or recycling. We, we know that uh, you know, the life stream kind of a concept is a very common concept in Eastern fiction for obvious reasons. So perhaps maybe being able to literally cycle the souls of those back into the rest of the world might literally help reduce the desertification. It is also possible that both of these things might help with the tree generating mana and the souls being recycled back into either the rest of the world or the tree itself might be a way, uh, the boundary tree, by the way, might be a way for this whole process to reverse and finally stop. But that brings me to my next point, and this is something I'm really hoping that the remake addresses, because we never actually really deal with that mana beast. And that's my own terminology. I don't even know what they actually call it, or him, or whatever. Uh, the, the great beast that's that's been draining all the mana out of the world, the source of the desertification, the very reason they started the flux sacrifice concept was because of this mistake that they made. And the sacrifices literally just was the emergency, oh, stopgap kind of a problem to deal with it. Hell, it, that we're so far removed at this point from that stopgap, from that uh, concept, that most people, most common people, aren't even aware of why we do this sacrifice or how the sacrifice works or what it's supposed to actually stop. They just know desertification is bad, right? And in some way it's being caused by the royal family of Granorg or their lack of action or something, right? <laughs> I mean, God's sakes, one of the big pushes that Hugo has over in Alistair, <laughs> excuse me, is the very idea that one of the reasons that we need to go to war with Granorg is because they're not doing their duty and getting rid of this desertification, for God's sakes. We even know that this is an accelerating process because if you choose the bad ending where you go off with Rainy and say, yep, let's live happily ever after, that happily ever after is about a year. And then, whew, whole world's gone. Desert. So we know, it's just interesting to me that this massively important seal was put up and never properly explained. I don't mean in out of universe. We know what's going on. I mean in universe. They didn't really properly pass this down to their previous generation or their their succeeding generations to say, hey, this is why you're doing this, and this is the how, and this is what this was supposed to be. Blah 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 blah. Right? Why not be a little bit more overt about this? Now, it is worth noting that everything I just said mostly applies to the events of the game. It is possible that people were more cognizant of what exactly the sacrifice was and the flux was and the desertification was prior to Heiss's interactions with Victor, which basically cut off, started off the events of this game. I'm not sure about that. I always got the impression that this is one of those lost-to-history kind of a situations where, you know, we know we keep doing such and such because tradition and because it works, but we're not really 100% sure why. Which, 
again, reminds me of FF10 in a way. Not a negative, by the way. I'm not calling it out for being like terrible or awful or anything like that. Just, just a commentary. So I do have to say I love the way that they approach the story in this game in general. I'm just going to pause before I talk about the two Chronicles and mention that. Because I love the idea of what is effectively a smart JRPG. Obviously, there are several typical JRPG elements in this game. Duh. But a lot of the main characters, a lot of even the secondary characters, kind of bypass those usual tropes and usually goes to, at the very least, what I call two-dimensional characters. And to be completely honest, most typical JRPGs have one-dimensional characters. You know, there's the guy who's... Raw. Then there's the girl who's ah. And then there's the girl who's super powerful, deadly. And then there's, you know, the the obstinate bureaucrat and so forth and so on. You know, one note characters, in other words. But a lot of the characters here in Radiant Historia were two note characters, and in some cases even three note characters, which is basically as as in depth as it tends to get, um, since three note just basically means they actually have real uh, complexity and depth to them. I like that. I like the idea that. Uh, let, let me use one of my favorite examples on this one is uh, Protea, the queen, is someone who is a completely one-dimensional character, right? There's nothing else to her, and I'll discuss her more in just a moment. But then we have Selvin and Dias, who are evil, absolutely, definitely the villains, basically the people actually in charge of uh, Granorg. I keep having to check the name of the damn place. It's Cygnus, Granorg, and Alistair. I can't remember those. Anyway, so she, they're the ones actually in charge of the country, right? But each of them, in addition to being evil, in addition to being the manipulators, have additional layers of characterization added to them to make them more interesting than just, I'm the person, you know, I'm, I'm the guy behind the guy, right? Although I do have to say, we really should have had a proper boss fight with Diaz. I'm not sure why we didn't. I mean, Diaz is supposed to be this big, amazing swordsman, and that's talked up several times, and then it's a cutscene. Come on. <laughs> Anyways, nevertheless, that, that's kind of what I'm talking about. The main example of that I want to talk about, I'm actually going to say for last, so forgive me for segueing on that for just a moment, but smart smart general storytelling, and I like that. I also kind of like how, for the most part, this story is effectively just another chapter in a larger story. They even say that flat out in, in the golden ending. You know, this is just another blink when... One tiny little moment of time in, uh, when compared to overall human history. And I kind of like that presentation because as long as it's well done, there's nothing wrong with that kind of story. As I mentioned earlier, this is not the salvation of the world. We don't save the world in this game. We prevent it from dying, but we don't save it. Now, again, I do hope we get to the point where we save it, as I said earlier, but there's nothing wrong with a story, especially as an introduction to what might be you know, an IP of basically establishing the setting, establishing the characters, creating the status quo, and seeing another day in the life of all of these people. And that's one of the reasons why I say I don't have much to say about a lot of the specific things, because a lot of the side quests, a lot of the secondary uh, subplots and character arcs are all just, this is another day in this person's life kind of a thing. You know, what can I say about Roche, for example? You know, he obviously has that super loyalty thing going on, and that had to be effectively beaten out of him. Um, you know, what I say about Rainy and how much she's had to go through, and how much she wants to stop being this incredibly awesome badass just because she's freaking sick of it, right? You know, I, they, they're all there. They're interesting, but I don't have much to say about them because it is another day in their life. 
and I do like that. It just makes it weird for someone whose job it is to sit here and talk about it. But I digress. Let's talk about the sacrifice thing. I do have to say, this is a little bit meta, the idea that leveling up is more or less literally what you have to do in order to prepare your souls for the sacrifice, in order to be a strong enough sacrifice. That kind of makes sense to me. You know, the, the idea that souls have a value attached to them is something that is very common in fiction. So the idea that, for example, if they pulled someone off the street and said, stab, and that it wouldn't do much, that it would push back, you know, reinforce the, she the seal a little bit, not a lot, not really do a whole, a whole lot to really help protect against the desertification. But if we get a soul which is very you know, invested and very willing to do this and has grown very strong with connections to others and blah, 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 that that soul is willing to really push back across the whole continent and be able to really seal this thing in for a longer period of time, that makes sense to me. Now, I will have to say using literal time travel as a way to do this is one of the most roundabout things in the world, but I'm willing to allow this in this case because remember when they first made that first seal it was kind of just on on the fly it was not a solution to their problem it was a band-aid to a gushing wound well actually that's not even accurate it was grabbing it was ripping off the shirt and shoving the cloth down on a gushing wound you know it was just <laughs> we need to deal with this right now kind of a situation and over time, it probably got to the point where it's more of a tourniquet kind of a thing, but still not actually dealing with the problem. And it never has been. And again, we know that the old empire basically disintegrated right after the sacrifices happened, splitting up into various city-states or independent nations. I get the very strong impression, this is just the, the world builder in me and the, the po politician, whatever. That's not, a, that's not a writer. The guy who likes politics in fiction, it's got to be a word for that, um in me that looks at this and thinks what probably happened is the old empire was like, you know, shove the thing on the wound, make the seal, sacrifice the person. Okay, now we need to do this because we're going to need to do this again, but we need to make sure the soul is strong enough. Well, we already have these chronicles, right? Well, at the very least, we already have the Black Chronicle. We already have the Black Chronicle ready to go. It's, it's what actually caused this mess. Why don't we make a counterpart? Okay, we'll give the Black Chronicle to the caster. We'll give the White Chronicle to the Sacrificer, and they'll be able to experience the world and the time and be able to see all these people, and that will give them more investment than is possible for a normal human life, right? I mean, there's a degree of sense-making in there, especially since, again, they already have the tool at their disposal with regards to the Flux and the Black Chronicle. So if they just were like... If they pulled an I Am Setsuna or a Final Fantasy X, for example they would be risking the possibility of that sacrifice dying or getting waylaid or whatever. But with the Chronicle, they'll be able to rewind time and be like, okay, hang on, hang on. let's do that again. <laughs> let's try that again. So it's not a perfect solution in character and out of character. It's the kind of thing that is even acknowledged to be basically just a, a slapdash, let's make this happen. But it does still make sense to me. I'll tell you who I feel bad for too, those two kids whose names I can't even remember. The two elf kids who've been there for however long. Again, I'm pretty sure they never say this outright, but I had the very strong impression that they were the children of whoever was the person trying to set up this Band-Aid, this emergency tourniquet on this situation, or tourniquet if you prefer. Uh, because, holy crap. <laughs> and they're just stuck there in Historia 
forced to follow a very archaic set of rules and forced to watch all of these bad futures outside of time and watch them as they go back and forth and back and forth. Imagine how much history that those two have witnessed at this point in time. It's no wonder they act so damn callous. It's no wonder they act so distant for the most part, only actually caring in, God, I think like three instances in the entire game, you know, two, two of which were in the ending. It's just, yeah. But it makes sense. You witness so much, after a while it just kind of rolls over. You know, you got this big, nice, rocky crag of rock. You have the wind blow over it long enough. It's just going to be smooth. It doesn't matter anymore. It's going to go right over you. Now, uh, I'm looking at my, my notes here. I like... One of the implications... So let, let's actually talk about Cygnus really quick. Cygnus, or Cygnus, or however you want to say that, makes a lot of sense to me in a world that is dominated by Altea and Granorg. Because, or Alistair, Altea, wow, that's, that's the wrong setting. Alistel and Granorg. Because Alistel and Granorg are both really horrible places. No, seriously. And in fact, by all accounts, they have been horrible places for at least a generation. Uh, pretty much ever since Hugo started to really take power, and ever since Victor died. And it has implied, although never outright stated, that Victor is actually, well, let's just say he was a horrible king, that he was a horrible person, that he was this big, popular, everyone loved him, sitting on the laurels of other people's hard work bastard, who pretty much is the single strongest reason why Heiss ended up going the way he did, and, of course, we know what happened to Ernst as pretty much a direct consequence of that. So, yeah, there's a lot of implication that Victor wasn't that great, and so these kingdoms might have been bad for a long time. Now, I know, medieval age kingdoms being evil in their leadership is not exactly a new idea, since real life. But the funny thing about this, and the thing I like about this, is that Cygnus is not portrayed as this paradise place. In fact, one of the things I find most engaging about Cygnus compared to the other two kingdoms is that the other two kingdoms' faults are very obvious, very overt, and shoved into your face. Cygnus, they tend to mention things. You know, they don't hide things, but they don't overly expand upon things. They don't shove things into your face. Cygnus practices regular slavery, for example. It's the kind of thing that just kind of slid under the rug there, practically. It's just one little thing as part of the... Uh, uh, Oh, God, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a side quest where you, you'd say, oh, my God, slavery is a normal thing in sickness. And, of course, you know, outlaws are very common. Violence is very common. It is portrayed as not the, the good option, but simply the alternative of what is effectively an anarchy. Yeah, I know Garland actually runs the place, but let's be honest, sickness is effectively an anarchic stake uh, with, with state with only a few exceptions to that. Now, by contrast, of course, we have Grand Org. Grand Org is run, of course, by Protea, who is the worst kind of nobility. I mentioned earlier that she's a one-note character, and that's absolutely true, but she is a very extreme version of it. See, there's the kind of person who was born into the purple, right? Who, was, who grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth, and those people tend to be pretty bad. However, it is possible that those kind of people at least have upbringing or education or some sense of responsibility for their station or some sense of protocol for their station. Obviously, these things don't always happen. And we and there's a reason the born with a silver spoon in your mouth thing is a concept. But 
there's at least a chance that someone who was born to the purple can actually have some semblance of responsibility or decency or ideals. We actually see this uh, in, in the princess who we, we all think is going to be a villain. I can't think of it. It's it Eridica or something like that. <laughs> I can't remember her name. God. Uh, we, we see this in her. But Protea, she married in. She was just someone who was pretty. And that just makes it worse, doesn't it? Because it's not just the fact that she married into riches. I mean, in real life, there's a reason the whole concept exists that most people who win the lottery blow it and have no idea how to deal with the fiscal responsibility. So imagine marrying into nobility when you're actually in charge. Imagine your, your husband dies and you're now the queen. Or, you know, flip the genders if you want. It doesn't matter. Point being, you are now in charge of this kingdom. And you have nothing to support you of that other than the fact that you are pretty. That you are physically attractive. That was your qualification. God's sakes. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, this whole desertification sacrifice thing has to be done by people of the bloodline. I'm not sure why. I've, I've always kind of questioned that concept in fiction in general. But I'll at least accept it. Protea isn't of the bloodline. She married in, so literally can't do it. Which, of course, kind of leads to the, uh, I keep wanting to say Altail, the Alistel thing. So that makes sense. But the other thing I wanted to comment about Protea is that it's weird to me how Selvin and Dias still bow to her despite controlling her. Like, there's, the burning of the city is the most obvious example I could point to here. You know, I need to get that one person. That's excessive and evil and cruel, and even both of them see that, and yet they still go along with it. Why? I mean, this is pointed out in-game that if Protea dies, because it's an option to assassinate her at one point, if she dies, then Selvan and Diaz could keep, just keep ruling and say that she sequestered herself away away from the public eye. It's not that hard. And, in fact, I, I hate to point this out, because I'm gonna, but I'm going to talk about it next. Anyways, they already did the same damn thing with the prophet Noah over in the other country. So why do they go along with this? I don't quite, I don't quite understand that. But speaking of the other country, we have Alistel, the Thaumatech. God, that's going to be interesting to see how the voice actors say that word, Thaumatech. Um, you know, another form of Magitech, which is actually kind of cool. And we've got this big, progressive, burgeoning industrial empire, uh, which also happens to be incredibly evil, because they are preaching all of this Nazi crap, let's just call it what it is, you know, racial purity and, and purging, and literally trying to push for actual genocide against the beastmen, for God's sakes. What the hell? I wanted to talk about Hugo more, but ultimately I don't feel like I have a lot to say about him. Hugo was probably one of the more interesting villains to me, personally. I'd say the second most interesting villain in the, in the whole game. Because he comes across as someone who should be a Krennic. Lorium's plug. Not going to explain it because it's on the Lorium's page. But he isn't. He's actually a big fish. He is, in fact, one of the bigger villains of the entire game. And one of the people who's directly responsible for a lot of crap happening. He is actively ruining his own country in his efforts to purify it and his efforts to solidify his own control over it. And he is actively pursuing this war against Granorg in order to try and ruin their country. Now, of course, Granorg is nice and evil, too. So, again, there's no good guys here. But Hugo is just this massive death ball of doom. 
Although, admittedly, it's probably mostly thanks to Fennel that Hugo's able to accomplish what he is, because Hugo is not actually a particularly charismatic person. That's actually mentioned several times in, in setting. That's why he sends off people to, to not be around, right? But one of the things I find most interesting about Hugo is it feels like he believes his own bullcrap. Uh, I usually refer to this as he, he drank his own Kool-Aid, right? And I'm curious what you guys think of this, because for the longest time I assumed Hugo was just a sniveling little rat who was manipulating the situation to his own ends. Like, the fact that we didn't see Noah early on was just a huge red flag, like, uh-oh, right? And, and nobody's seen Noah in years. It's like, okay, yep, something's going on. And sure enough, something is, in fact, going on. I was actually suspecting Heiss, ironically, uh, not Hugo, but point remaining. So Hugo revealed, ah, yes, it was me all along. I was the one doing this. But then as you're defeating him, and finally, no, really defeating him in the alternate uh, timeline, and as you're denouncing him, he, mench- he, he, t- he says several things and several lines of dialogue that make me think that he started to actually believe his own lies, that he really thinks this was the holy path, that this was some kind of ordained spiritual cleansing of his country, that this really was a good thing to go on to go to war with their neighbors and to try to pursue genocide against their fellow uh, sentient and sapient beings on the planet. Why? Now, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's that whole desertification thing, but I always got the impression that the desertification thing was basically just a Cass's belly, something they could use it as an excuse to go to war with Granorg or, and, and go after the Beastmen, not something that was an actual relevant point in their, in their thought processes. So uh, I'm looking at my list here, and I can't help but notice that I actually only have two points left to talk about. Those would be my two favorite characters, Stock and Heiss. Now, let me just go ahead and say that I really, really like Stock in this game. It would be, I mentioned earlier that this game uh, is smart in its overall presentation, that it doesn't just completely do the typical JRPG stuff. Stock is a great example of that. Because on the surface, if I was just to bullet point Stock, you'd be like, oh, typical JRPG protagonist, got it, right? Right, I mean, he's young, he's uh, heroic, he's stoic. He's brave. He wants to help everyone around him. You know, very typical stuff. But he's not. He's very intelligent. In fact, he is actually emphasized to being the smart one of the party rather than the strong one. That probably goes to Roche or Rainey uh, as far as the strong one goes, or Ott, for that matter, from a magical perspective. Um, He's... he. I, I mean, I don't know how else to put this. He thinks his way through situations. He actually says, huh... Maybe this is happening because of this. Or maybe I shouldn't do this because it's going in this way. He tends to figure things out pretty quickly. And he cares about people. But it's because of the way he is presented. Let me, let me try to explain this. Because this is a concept in fiction I love. I have a quote. <laughs> and that quote is, That which does not kill me does not make me stronger. I make me stronger by refusing to let it kill me. Now, this is something I've believed for a very long time. Um, and I still believe it to this very day. In real life, it's worth noting. I bring this up because one of the things that's most fascinating for me as a writer is that you could have two characters go through identical circumstances and come out of it with completely separate outcomes. Different mindsets, different perspectives. Anybody who saw my Skyrim live roleplay, we discussed this very concept. 
I mentioned how we had just gone through something horrible. And then I talked about how we could come out of this with bitterness and darkness and cynicism. Then I immediately flipped it and said, well, actually, you know what? We could use this as a, as a balancing point, as a way to galvanize, to try and fight against these kind of evils and these kind of injustices, to try and make sure that no one else ever has to feel what we feel, right? That's the great thing about writing a character like Stock and, and having a character like Stock, because he went through all this crap. God, just... Heist puts him through, through so much garbage, and never mind the fact that he was going through garbage even when he was Ernst, or Arnst, or however you're supposed to say his friggin' name. You know, the previous guy. <laughs> All of this garbage he's gone through, but he decides to come out of it with the best of his humanity, not the worst. He decides to look at it and say, I'm going to try and be a better person. I don't want other people to hurt. I want to try and care. He even says this flat out to Heist in the finale. He says, I found people to put above myself and that is what you were lacking. And that's one of the reasons why Heiss, which is my last point to talk about, is my favorite villain in this piece, because his perspective is so understandable. He is, in almost every way, basically the same as Stock. Went through the same crap, saw the same bull stuff. Just all of, he saw the, the past, he saw the ugliness of the past. They even call it that, the ugliness of the past the despair of the future, and he saw how horrible and wretched the world was. And he did. I've just finished describing how screwed up this place is. Remember, we have three major kingdoms, and then the beastmen. The beastmen are okay with kind of doing their own thing and wiping everyone out if it comes to that, right? Remember the whole thing with, I can't remember his name, Calvin X or something like that. Um, we've got the, the, the kingdom run by the incredibly elite corrupt who literally can't save the world, because of the bloodline problem. Oh, and also, who's being manipulated by two other evil people. Then we've got the, 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 the technological theocracy on the other side, who is also incredibly evil and advocating war and genocide. And then we've got the slavers and lawless men. <laughs> this is a crapsack world. So it is so obvious and easy to understand when you look at it why Heist said, screw this mess. He had no one to care about. Well, that's not true, but he decided not to care. And as a consequence, had no one to care about, with, with the exception, with the exception, Stock immediately decided to care and found people to care about. And probably completely unintentionally, everything Heist does to Stock just pushes him towards someone else towards other people, to literal, personal, individual connections, as well as on the grander scale, trying to not just fight a war as part of the special intelligence group, but, but trying to actually care about the outcomes of the common folk, the, the members of Cygnus, the, the citizens of Ganorg, the everyday person in Alistair, and of course the beastmen as well, because we interact with them too, and it's just, it's a very common JRPG thing, right? The connections between people, you know, they, which usually leads to the spirit bomb concept. But here it's developed very naturally and it's presented very well. So I like it. Heist didn't have any of that, with the one exception, because the one person that Heist really gave a damn about was his nephew. And it's made, I don't think he ever says this flat out, but it's made very clear that Heist legitimately cares about Stock as if he was his son and puts him through all this stuff, not to hurt him, 
but just to convince him, to show him, this is what I have seen. This is the ugliness of the world. This is how messed up and how wrong everything is. This is why it needs to end. And what is funny about that is Stock does all of this effort to convince, or I'm saying this wrong, Heiss does all this effort to convince Stock of his point of view. But if you do everything right in the golden ending, it is Stock who convinces Heiss of his point of view. Because remember, there's two aspects to being the sacrifice. One is you have to level up, right? You know, experience, see, perceive. Both Heiss and Stock have done that. They've been bouncing back and forth through time since, since this all began, since the game started, basically. You know, so they've got tons of both of that. Both of them qualify there. But the other qualification is they have to have that will, that desire to care about another, to, to wish to die for someone else, to literally be a sacrifice internally, not just externally. And when Heiss sees the possibility of, and again, direct quote from the game, hope for the future rather than despair of the future, or, or excuse me, despair of the present or ugliness of the past, that is what convinces him. Heiss sacrifices himself, not for the world, not for his brother, not for the kingdoms. He does it for his favorite nephew. And there's something nice and human about the fact that the world is, the, the, the disaster is averted, because again, the world isn't saved, because one guy loved his nephew. I find something very enjoyable of the simple humanity of that. I suppose that's actually all I really have to say about this game. I'm, I'm really hoping there's a sequel for this sometime. I really want to see more. I really want to see you know, a, an attempt to stop the Mana Beast and, and to, to permanently end the desertification. I want to see what happens to these kingdoms. You know, Hugo's been removed from power. Protea has been removed from power. Uh, Dias and Selvin are gone, right? I, I want to see what happens in this future that has been crafted. But at the same time, I also have to admit that if, even if it never gets a proper sequel, I'd be satisfied with it as is now. Because again, one of the major points there is that this is just another page being turned in the book of history. And that for once, it is being turned with hope for what happens in the next chapter, rather than despair. I hope you've enjoyed my rumination on this game. I do apologize again for my voice. And I hope to see you guys next time.